What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. All right, we're here today with some of the best online course creators that I know. Uh, so many indie hackers who are getting started and who are successful are successful because they're finding ways to teach other people online. And I think the most straightforward way to teach people online is through online courses. So we've got Andrew Barry, who runs the On Deck Course Creators Fellowship. On Deck is blowing up. Everybody's talking about it. And the people who aren't talking about it seem to be part of it already. We've also got Marie Poland, who runs an online course called Notion Mastery. Marie's badass. I don't know if this is public, Marie. And if, if it's not, we'll bleep it out. I don't even know if this is accurate. But I heard your course sold like five or six hundred grand in revenue last year. Something insane. In the last year, yeah. It's crazy because it's like I've been seeing you teach everybody Notion and I just didn't realize like I would have guessed like a fifth of that. <laughs> so uh, I'm super impressed. I think it's amazing. Super inspiring. And then last but not least, we've got Ali Abdal, brilliant YouTuber with over a million and a half subscribers. You've also got a course called the Part-Time YouTuber Academy. And you're also a full-time medical student, I believe. Welcome to the show, Ali. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. So maybe we'll start there because that's uh, a crazy amount of productivity. I don't think most people could do even one of those things, let alone all three of them. How are you so productive, Ali? How are you doing so much more than everyone else can? I mean, it's, it's worth saying that I'm no, I'm no longer a full-time medical student. I've now become a doctor. So I was, I was working as a doctor for two years while, while doing all this stuff. And I've kind of taken a break at the moment in intending to travel the world and do like medical stuff in Australia, but then pandemic happened. And so right now I'm in a bit of a weird place where I'm sort of a productivity guru on the internet, but I don't really have a job other than doing internet stuff. So it always feels a bit weird. But whenever people ask me about, about, about the productivity thing, my, my main spiel is just that a lot of it is around just enjoying the things that you're doing. And part of that is, is finding things to work on that you find fun. Like I'm sure you find it fun working on indie hackers, but also part of it is sort of choosing to find fun in the things that you end up doing anyway. And so a lot of students studying for exams, things like that, you don't really have a choice in the matter, but there are lots of things that we can do to make the process more enjoyable for ourselves. And so it's like that thing that Naval Ravikant says that, you know, if you find something that feels like play to you and looks like work to others, then the productivity kind of takes care of itself. I love that. I've been doing that a lot with indie hackers recently. For example, for this podcast, I hired like a podcast boss and she's an editor, a producer. She does the notes. Uh, she'll sit down with me for two hours a week and have a call where I prep for episodes. And it's way more fun to do it with somebody who's like, you know, riffing back and forth with me than doing it on my own. And so it turns this thing where like, yeah, it was pretty fun, but now it's super fun. And all the hard parts I've just outsourced. And it's like a thousand times better and easier to work on. Yeah, I was gonna say like Ali, you've also got an exceptionally strong team that you've built around you. Um, which when I was working with you and your program, it was, it was quite a, a joy to witness that. And I know that's something sort of near and dear to Marie uh, as well. It's, I don't think any of us could do any of this without a, a really strong team around us. Marie, what's your team like? Because on the outside looking in, it's like, this is just Marie. <laughs> it's your face and it's you talking. What's going on behind the scenes? Yeah, like it used to be my husband and I, and then he took on a full-time job about a year and a half ago. So it kind of went, you know, two back to one, but I couldn't do everything myself. So I had an assistant for the last year and a half, and I only just hired her full-time last month. So now it's two of us and also bring on various contractors and assistant coach too. So I actually stopped doing one-on-one -on -one work and now I have an assistant coach that handles all of the the one-on-one. So that's, that's been amazing. Like it's just such a shift in uh, my own focus. Like now I can really focus on the 
stuff. I want to focus on content creation. I don't have to do all the logistics behind the scenes. So it's it's a game changer when you hire that first person. So walk me through what it is that you do exactly, because I use Notion religiously. Like my prep for this podcast is all in Notion. I've tried to explain Notion to other people. They have no idea what it is. Uh, what's Notion and, and how does your course work exactly? Yeah, I mean, I use it to manage nearly every aspect of my life and business, everything from like tracking the health of my plants to even track the offer that I made to my uh, assistant to, you know, become a full time member, like every piece of my business is managed through Notion. So people call it a productivity platform. And it is a lot slower than a lot of other platforms. So that is a big complaint that people have. But I think of it as a place where everything is integrated. I can see everything in one place. And that peace of mind of just knowing where all the like moving parts can sit and it's one or two clicks away, whether it's data, whether it's creativity, note taking, you name it, it all just kind of lives in this one place. And it just brings so much peace to my brain. So I got so stoked about this. I was, you know, sharing it with all my friends and colleagues and everything. And at some point, I was like, okay, there's there's something here. I think when the first person said, if you make a course about this, I will give you money. And I was like, hmm, okay, like there's there's something here. I'm talking about it enough. You know, people are asking questions and stuff. And so I decided to do a webinar on it. It took me like three years to get up the courage to run a webinar. I was so scared. Uh, and I was just so excited, you know, chatting about all the things I'd done with Notion. And it just kind of, honestly, that's everything kind of exploded from there. The Notion team reached out. They were really curious to chat with me more about collaborating. And so business just kind of took things in a totally different direction. And I was like, could I get paid to teach people about this? Is this a thing I could make a living on? And it was, it was a risk. I was like, okay, do I want to be known as the Notion girl? I don't know. Let's try it. Let's try it for a season. Let's like see what happens. I have so many other skills. Like I've been working with online course creators for so long. I was like, let's try it and uh, shipped a course. And then business took a, <laughs> a left turn. And I was like, well, okay, that answers my question. So let's like make hay while the sun is shining and, and see what happens. So the rest is kind of history. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating to, to see what kinds of topics and, and sort of focuses you can have to actually make money from a course, because it didn't seem like something that you predicted in, in the beginning. And I think that's where almost every course creator has to start. You know, if you want this to be something that you make a living from, you know, is this even the right topic? Ali, you have basically sort of transitioned to teaching people not just how to be productive, but how to be YouTubers. How much money do you charge for your course? How did you choose the topic? Yeah. So at the moment, ours is a sort of a six-week live online course. And so it's $1,500 for the basic edition, $2,500 for the premium, and $5,000 for the executive that's a lot of money. It was like really, really, really scary charging that amount. I'd done courses in the past where mostly my courses were on Skillshare, which is like free basically for people to access with a free trial or like a Netflix-esque subscription. And I'd sold a few courses helping people get into med school for the sort of $100 price tag. But doing a sort of high ticket live online course, that was like, yeah, I hadn't, hadn't really done that before. When I thought of online courses, you know, the model I had in my head was the, hey, you pay a few hundred dollars for a course and you watch a series of videos. But I was speaking to two friends, uh, Tiago Forte and David Perel, who run their own live courses, which I'd taken. And I was running them through my idea of, hey, doing a course for YouTubers. And they said that, look, you should really consider doing it as a live thing because course completion rates for self-paced courses are like abysmally low and like basically no one completes them. You and I have probably signed up to dozens of online courses and just sort of watched maybe one or two videos in them. It's just the, the model of doing it live seemed interesting. And so I tried it out sort of late 2020 and it was just so much fun and infinitely easier actually to teach a class on Zoom than it is to record a load of pre-recorded videos. 
So yeah, we started off a lot cheaper than that, but sort of hiked up the prices over time as the demand increased and it's been really fun. Tell me about that process. Cause you said your earlier courses were like a hundred dollars. Now your highest tier is $5,000. You've gone 50 X higher. How do you have the emotional wherewithal to do that? Cause I know people who are afraid to charge $10 a month for their product that they spent the last year building. The thing that kind of sold it for me was speaking to this marketing coach called Billy, Billy Bros, who basically said that, look, you need to stop thinking of selling as being something evil. And you need to think of selling as being you, you're doing a service to your customers. You're doing them a favor by letting them buy from you. And as long as you are delivering on the value that they were promised, they will be glad that you offered that service. In, 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 like, in a weird way, just changing that mindset to, I am trying to make money off of people and more towards, I'm trying to create a transformation for people and they will be happy to pay for it. That that made me more okay with charging for it. But still, you know, the first time around we put the car up it started off as $400 as like our cheapest plan. And I was, I was terrified. I was like sweating through all of my clothing uh, just before the cart went live. And I was just so surprised that people actually bought it. And then every other course creator I've spoken to says that, look, if you just double your prices, you actually end up with the same number of people. In a, in a weird way, the more someone pays for something, the more invested they are in actually making it work for them. And so weirdly, if I were to charge $100 for, for my YouTuber course, so many more people would ask for refunds than if we charge $5,000 for it. And so many fewer people would actually go through the course and find it useful than the higher price tag. Hey, I talked to Jordan O'Connor on the podcast and he had this very interesting story about how he was like working so hard to become an anti hacker and learning everything he could. And he like used his credit card to pay like $2,000 for a course to learn SEO. And he was just in debt. And it's like, you know what? He actually finished that course and took it and took it really seriously because like he spent a lot of money on it. And I know that I spent hundreds of dollars on lots of things that are really, you know, super cheap and just never finished it. So, Andrew, I think you're making the right decision to charge $3,000 for the On Deck Course Creators Fellowship. And, you know, the math there is pretty cool too. If you have 111 people paying $3,000, that's $333,000 you've gotten from barely over 100 people compared to people who are charging like $5 a month. You know, they need thousands of customers just to be able to pay their salary. And so, this is what I like about education businesses you can charge a lot of money. It's super valuable to people. They're willing to pay. You're actually helping them. So they're grateful. They don't feel ripped off. And you don't have to like be some sort of marketing genius who reaches millions of people like Ollie's doing on YouTube uh, in order to actually cover your costs. It's a lot easier to sell one thing for $100 than 100 things for $1. Like the asymmetry in the ease of selling is just like completely insane. And also the sorts of people that pay thousands for an online course are also a lot less likely to need handholding than the sorts of people that pay $10 for an online course. So this is one of the cool things about OnDeck. I don't know how to describe OnDeck. It's almost like a an online college that has all these different, you call them fellowships, so kind of like, you know, podcasting and angel investing and course creation. And one of the coolest things about it is like it's cohort based. So it's like going to college. Like you don't just take the course by yourself and do it alone in your your room. There's a bunch of other cool, smart, successful people who take the course and the exact same two or three month period that you take it. And then half the value isn't even like the curriculum. It's just like getting to be in the same program with Marie or Ali or whoever else. Is that a good description description of OnDeck, Andrew? Like how does it work? 
No, that's that's spot on, Cortland. And it's Onyx started as as a community. You know, that's its core, and it's probably one of the best out there in terms of offering community. The the value of that ecosystem is just it's exponentially growing now with the, the people and, and the sort of quality of people that are getting added to it. What we're now working on and what I'm specifically focused on with helping some of the other program directors is on, on layering the educational component to it. So thinking about more of a, a tighter curriculum that looks at the learning journey and that's actually the hardest part is the community. I think many would agree, right? And so the fact that they've already nailed that is is great that we can layer in this educational piece that kind of takes it into that online university or, or Stanford of the internet as, as it's been called. I'm going to get all of you guys' opinions on the most important parts of education because you all educate. I spend time educating indirectly through interviewing people like you. And I think probably everybody has strong opinions about education. Like I remember being in high school and just being so pissed off at the curriculum that we were learning. Like I had to memorize like what date did this hospital burn down and like, you know, what month in 1873? I'm like, why does this matter? Why am I learning this? I could be learning a million better things. Like you're not teaching me personal finance. You're not teaching me psychology. You're not teaching me about uh, sex or relationships or anything. Um, and so for me, like the curriculum is super big. What do you guys think about online education? What do you think is important for teaching people effectively? One of the things that I, I often think about is just the information that you're delivering needs to be useful in some way, uh, like immediately. Like the student needs to be able to see how they can they can apply it. And often this is just the one key difference between the good medical lectures that I've attended and delivered and the bad ones, where the good ones will start off with a scenario. They'll say, all right, five years from now, you're going to graduate, you're going to be a doctor. Let's imagine you're in the emergency department and you a patient comes in and they've got shortness of breath and, and chest pain and they've got this and that. And then you do an electrocardiogram and this is what it shows. Like, how would you approach this? And at the start, no one has any idea because they haven't learned, this, the, learned, learned the subject yet. But imagining themselves in the shoes five years from now thinking, oh crap, I need to know the answer to this, just makes them pay attention and absorb it in a way where if you just had a lecture on, here's how the heart works or here's how EKGs work, no one would pay attention because it's just not immediately obvious why that might be useful. And like the weird thing I found was that when, once I graduated medical school, I now cared a lot more about the knowledge I was getting. In a way, wishing I'd paid more attention in med school because I could now see it being immediately relevant. Uh, and I just wish more people did that, just making it obvious what the point of something is. You'd probably agree with this, but framing your modules in terms of outcomes instead of topics. Like I think a lot of first time teachers maybe approach it in terms of I want to teach X versus what does the student want to be able to do or who do they want to be by the end of this module? And you can think about that at the course level, like who do I want to be? by the time I finish this course and who do I want to be by the time I finish this module? Like you can kind of look at that as a micro or or macro thing. So think of it in terms of action. What should people be able to to do by the end of this? And not just like, you're going to learn SEO. It's like, well, what am I actually learning? Like, what do I want to be able to do by the end of this? I think about that with Andy Hacker's podcast episodes too, where I like to start off episodes talking about like, okay, where are you at? You know, Marie, you're making like a crazy amount of money with your course. Like Ali, like you're completely independent. You have this huge YouTube channel. And like also you've got like all these passive income streams, et cetera. And I think once you hear, okay, this is where this person is. Like I would like to be there. Then suddenly everything they say takes on like a lot more importance. You actually care about their advice versus if you just jump straight in, you have no clue how much money this person's making or what their life is like, then it's like, why listen? Do you share your revenue numbers, Ali, for your courses and stuff? It's it's about one dollar per year per subscriber. But like last like twenty twenty for us, we made about three hundred thousand dollars from the first cohort of the YouTuber Academy, and about five hundred thousand dollars that year from Skillshare, which was weird. I never thought that would be the case. And maybe two hundred k from brand deals on YouTube, and about one hundred fifty k from AdSense. 
So all in oil is about 1.3 million. It's a ton. It's very de-risked because you, you've got multiple income streams. It's not just one thing. It's it's four or five different things of, you know, YouTube cuts out your ad deal or whatever, then you're probably still fine. My biggest fear, like at the start of 2020 was, oh my God, we're, this business is too reliant on YouTube. Let's start making classes on Skillshare. We're like, oh, okay, now we're too reliant on Skillshare because it makes up half our revenue. Okay, let's think about how we diversify away from Skillshare. You know, let's try and do our own course, which is how the YouTuber Academy first came to be as a self-hosted uh, kind of live course. I want to switch gears for a second and talk about the uh, the dark side of course creation. Uh, there's always posts about this on Andy Hackers because people get kind of tired of seeing how many people are selling their course. And it, I think from the outside looking in, sometimes it can look like it's just a bunch of people, you know, here's how to get big on Twitter. And then that's how you get big on Twitter by selling your course to get big on Twitter. <laughs> you know, it seems very circular. What are all of your opinions on, I guess, teacher qualifications? You know, if you go through the sort of traditional educational system, you go to a college, like, you know, you're getting educated by people who are, you know, you know, somewhat qualified to be there. If you're buying online courses, it's really easy to end up on Clubhouse and some scammer room where they're telling you how to make a million dollars next week. And suddenly you've paid, you know, your entire life savings for some scammy course. Yeah, there's sort of a buyer beware, right? Like you kind of have to do your research on who is the person that you're that you're taking this course from. And there's a difference between how to make $10,000 doing X versus I made $10,000 doing X. Like just because you did a thing once doesn't mean that's a framework or a system. And so I think, is there like a pattern of success, right? Is there like more than one thing to look to? What is this teacher's history? What is their experience? I know I'm not one for like official credentials. I don't really care necessarily. Like did someone go to university and get a degree and do whatever, but I want to know like what is the output of, of what they've done and do I trust that person? And so that trust with a teacher I think happens long before before the, the course is purchased, right? It's like you're following them on Twitter. You're hearing what they say. There's resonance that happens long before. And so um, I think resonance is a big a big thing. Like you can have 10 different teachers teaching 10 different topics, but like the way someone delivers it just really resonates with you. And you're like, yes, okay, I like the way that person delivers that. I want that. So I think the interesting thing here is that like, I mean, a lot of colleges are also quite scammy. Like you're paying a lot of money. You're going into debt for like hundreds of thousands. And like, what's the return on that? Is the lecture actually good? I went to a pretty good medical school. Like Cambridge University Medical School is pretty solid. I would say 95% of my lectures were boring and un uninteresting. And most of the people I knew, including me, we learned it ourselves from YouTube videos. So I think education as a whole suffers from this problem of you might not know how good it is. At least with online courses broadly, you actually can see testimonials. And if you, YouTube, if you search YouTube for review of Notion Mastery or review of the Part-Time YouTuber Academy, you will see people creating their own supposedly unbiased reviews about it, which you don't really see, you know, review of Cambridge University Medical School curriculum 2021. It's just not really a thing. Yeah, I went to MIT, tuition is $55,000 a year times four years, like an insane amount. And it's like, I barely went to class. Like, I don't remember what I learned in my classes. I was mostly teaching myself to code, like by going online to the same websites everybody else was. And like, there's advantages, like it's a cool school, people will respect you more if you have that on your resume, blah, blah, blah. And like, I met some really amazing people, but like, they didn't really even have to have a curriculum. It was mostly just like a socially acceptable stamp to pay a lot of money to get. Yeah, it's credentialism. It, the, those scammy marketers online courses actually were so helpful in helping me refine what we were going to do with on-deck course creators because it became this perfect counterpoint. And they're so easy to spot, which is great. They make it so easy. Like you go in the clubhouse rooms and it's like a million emojis like rhinos and the bionic arms and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, you're like, okay, cool. Like I know exactly what that is about. And for me, the big difference is also what's great is it's easy to spot 
from a student's perspective is you can tell you can tell if a course is transforming people's lives it's like ali was saying like people were just creating like long videos you know how much time and effort goes into making a video and they are doing that just to review his course that means that changed their life that's the difference i think when when you get into the real transformational courses and the other thing is passion like everyone everyone here is super passionate about teaching and that that drives the transformation but it's also like it's an energy like marie says that you can you can see and resonate with long before you even take the course Another topic here on the dark side of education is, is are people even finishing these courses? Or if you pay a lot of money for a course, you're probably more likely to finish it. But is there any sort of guarantee that once you take a course that it actually helped you? You know, is there any place to leave a review and say this course sucked for future students? Uh, it seems like there's really no real accountability here. And there's like some models that are different. For example, Lambda School has these income share agreements where they essentially don't charge you tuition unless you go get a job which is probably like the most accountable you can be for your course changing somebody's lives. Uh, how do you all think about this with your courses? How do you know that people are getting the value that they pay for? This is a real struggle. There isn't really a kind of trust pilot for online courses. And so a lot of it is reliant on the course creator kind of making information public. And obviously, you know, if we have some students, and we do have some students who, you know, when we ask them how transformational was this course for you, they'll say it's a one out of 10. But we're not going to publish, we're not, not going to publicize that. We're not going to sort of put their <laughs> bad review on the website because we control the website. The thing we do is that we, you know, we've got a, a meeting about this like two days from now where my team and I will get together. We look through every single one of our entry and exit survey responses. We say kind of thank you to the people who rated it 10 out of 10, which is like 70% of people. And we spend a lot of time going through the people who rated it less than eight out of 10 thinking, okay, what could we have done differently? Um, how can we improve this for next time? How can we make sure? And with ours and with a lot of a lot of these other live courses, there is a kind of money back guarantee where what we say for ours is that if you complete the work, i.e. you do the opening survey, you just put out the six videos a week that we're, uh, you know, the, the, the six videos over six weeks that we're asking you to do, all we, all we ask is just make one video a week. That is the only thing you have to do. And you still don't find the course valuable, email us and we will give you all of your money back. And I, I don't think we've, we've not had a single person who's actually done everything and asked for their money back. We've had people who've said halfway through that our oh, real life got in the way. You know, I got COVID. I couldn't do the course. And we're like, okay, that's fine. Have your money back. Like, we don't, we don't, we don't want, you, want your money in this case. But it does rely on the individual course creators being honest about this. There isn't a trust pilot for courses. I'm going to throw in there, there potentially is one. Um, Eric Jorgensen is actually working on something called Course Correctly dot com and it's that's kind of exactly what he's trying to do so that's that's pretty cool i think and it's going to be so so valuable for this whole space yeah i think like ali said going through that student feedback asking the right questions also in your intake right like what would you consider a success going through this course that's really interesting there's really fun data to look at there like when people are describing their own intentions for when they finish the course and then an exit survey to see okay well how did that match up you know where did where did we uh, drop the ball or what could we do better i think most people don't realize course design is sort of like an iterative like it's never really done right it's like you go through a cohort and you're like okay here's all the places where we notice gaps you're always kind of going back and, and tweaking and, and trying to improve it if you're a great instructor i think uh, a lot of people can set it and forget it but i also want to play a little bit of devil's advocate too in that i don't think necessarily course completion is the best measure of course success like and i'll say this as someone who i take a ton of courses like i've always taken courses online like that's where all my money in business i'm 
I'm just like always like, what's the next, like a shortcut, right? Like, where can I learn from all these amazing people who've been been there before? And often I'll get what I need in the first couple of modules. And I'm like, awesome, got my value out of the course. I am good to go. And I'm happy. I'm like really happy. Even just that one nugget that just made it worth it was like, that was awesome. And so you might never see, like those instructors might ne- not ever see anything from me and might not know that like that, that piece of content or that delivery, that workshop changed something in my business. And I went off and I was super happy. So there aren't always mechanisms for that feedback to get surfaced. So I don't think completion necessarily is always the best measure, it's those outcomes. Like, how do we know that students are actually applying that knowledge out in the real world? And that's a little bit harder to measure. There's ways you can you can do that with the exit surveys and stuff like that and, and reporting back, doing those focus groups and stuff. In a way, that's what the Indie Hackers podcast is. Let me find Indie Hackers who are crushing it, bring them on and publicize their stories as widely as possible. And it's funny because often people are like, I don't want to hear the success stories. I want to hear the failure stories. Give me the nitty gritty. And a lot of people have tried to, to start these sites that are just failure stories. And like, you can't name any of them because no one actually wants to read a bunch of failure stories. It's not inspiring. You don't actually learn as much as you would think. And so I, I think the success stories are a much better sort of strategy to share. Or it's interesting to learn the challenges and failures from the people who've hit a certain level of success. You're like, where did you go wrong? It's like, I want to know that, but I want to know it from someone who's made it, right? Yeah. Where, where have you gone wrong, Marie? Where have I gone wrong? Oh, um, I mean, there's so many places. Like when I first launched the course, for example, it, there was no content finished. It was a total, total pilot, total beta. I'm actually a huge fan of always, even if you're going to do an evergreen course, always launch it in a beta pilot first, always, always. Like you need that student feedback. A course is never going to look like what you think it looks in your head. As soon as you put it out into the wild, it takes on a whole different shape. So I think that's really, really important. But I think one of the things that was so hard and having launched the course inside of Notion, right? And you can move data around, you can, you can move stuff. And I was very clear that it was a beta, but I think some folks that would have benefited more from like a very structured linear process came in and it's like, we and like content's changing. <laughs> I'm adding new modules. Like there were people who were like excited to be part of that building. And there were other people that were like, whoa, this is overwhelming. Like, you know, it was, it was too much. And so it's, just part of the learning process. I'm like, yep, okay. Like not everybody was maybe the best fit for, for a total pilot like that. Um, but you just, you learn and you just keep, keep adapting and iterating. Yeah. I talked to Tara Reed, who has a cool course teaching people to build apps without code. And like her first thing, I think she gave a talk and a few people in the audience were like, Hey, can you teach us to do that? And she's like, uh, for a thousand dollars. And they're like, sure. And it was just like a super impromptu fly by the seat of her pants, just figure it out. And then like after that, like I think it was like 50 or 100 people were like, oh, we want to learn that. And our course was now a little bit better, but still like super beta. And like, that's the cool thing about teaching. You can just like, like I could create a course tomorrow. I could just jump in and say, hey, who wants to be part of my course? Probably a few hundred people would sign up and fly by the seat of my pants. And like, no one's going to die. People might ask for refunds. I'll happily give refunds. And then I also won't put their negative testimonials on the website. <laughs> but it's super easy to just get to get started that way. So I, was, I have the theory that everyone has a, an online course in them. Like if you are helping people in a repeatable way and you're doing, you've done that a few times already. And that could be like coaching, consulting. It could be a service business. It could be, you know, so many different ways. Um, then the only thing separating you from teaching or scaling your impact is learning how to teach on the internet. And, and that's a skill. Like you can totally learn how to do that and get better at it and better at it. Like everyone has said, it's an iterative process. What do you think is the most important thing to teach course creators, Andrew? Because you're running the Course Creators Fellowship. It's very meta. You're like got a course basically teaching all these course creators how to make courses. And like your students, 
slash you know members are like pretty great like marie and ali like you guys could be teaching <laughs> and yet you're part of the fellowship learning andrew what are you teaching all these amazing course creators yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I recognize that there is no, I, like, I'm not the guru who's going to teach you how to create the perfect course. I'm going to give as much, um, in terms of guidance and, and frameworks and ideas for thinking about your course. I was talking to a guy earlier today whose course is a bunch of sort of guides, um, on a website and you, and it's, you know, they're like super multimedia with like audio versions and, and videos and stuff. And it's, and he was like, is this a course? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. It is a course like that. Totally. And that's the beauty of it. Like Marie and Marie and I talk about this all the time. Like there's such a massive spectrum of what can a course can be. And people, so first of all, people, it's about breaking that. Like it doesn't have to be a cohort based course. It doesn't have to be a bunch of videos on teachable. And um, there's just a million of different ways of content delivery. And so I think what's more important before you even get into content delivery, what platform you're going to use, all that sort of stuff is nailing three P's, which is how do you connect with the personal meaning of every student coming in? So it's not about you saying, this is what you need, but it's about you saying, I know what you want and you want and you want, and this is how I'm going to connect you with what I think you need. Um, and then peer to peer learning, which we talked about, like the power of the community and then the prompts to action, like doing like at least six videos that you go, that's where you learn the most, not from, you know, as, as, as amazing as Ali is in, in delivering his sessions, but you, you're going to learn so much more just getting a video done and then iterating and do, doing it again next week and next week. Um, so if you get those three P's, then personal meaning, peer to peer learning and, and prompts to action, that's sort of the, the building blocks for, for great teaching. And related to that, Andrew, the way you've got those three P's that are really memorable, I think every course creator in a way kind of has to distill their content into, hey, here's a frame, like a memorable framework that you're going to come away with, right? I think that's the hardest thing to do sometimes is to give your course that structure when it can feel like a medley of information. It's like, how do we give this? What's my unique framework? And, and that can be, I think, one of the, the biggest challenges to do. That's the creation part of this, right? Like that's, that's quite hard. Uh, Ali's got some amazing ones. The what are your what are some of the frameworks Ali that just crack me up oh we've got like the bird song technique we've got what's, like, what's the bird song yeah. technique the bird song technique is a way of never running out of ideas for content the theory being that if you're a normal person and you listen to bird song you think oh it's some bird singing but if you're the sort of nerd who understands what bird song is and like what birds it is it suddenly takes on a whole new meaning and it's like you've unlocked this part of your brain that can distinguish between a sparrow and a robin and a nightingale. And I don't know any other birds to name <laughs> And similarly, when it comes to content creation, when you become a creator and your mindset shifts from being a consumer to a creator, suddenly you start seeing content ideas while you're scrolling through Twitter on the toilet. Like more than half of my YouTube videos of video ideas have come like in the last four years from me just b being on the toilet, scrolling through Twitter and being like, oh, you know, that's a really interesting tweet that Cortland's just posted. I wonder if I can make a video kind of touching on that thing and where he kind of talks about this thing or, oh, Naval's just posted something interesting. Huh, I actually have some thoughts on that. Let's make a video about it. So it's, it's a bit of a stupid name, the birdsong technique, but it's, you know, it just makes it seem more memorable and in a way more legit than just saying, guys, scroll through Twitter while you're on the toilet to come up with content ideas. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah. Marie, what do you think is... Naming and framing, right? <laughs> what do you think is the most valuable thing that you teach in your courses on Notion Mastery, Marie? Yeah, I think what, what has been really interesting is like, initially it started as like, I'm teaching you how to use this tool. You know, like people want like, how the heck do I, what's the quickest way to learn this tool? But the idea is, it's what the tool allows you to do that's more interesting, right? And so people have come in and they said, oh, like I expected to learn about Notion, but it was more like a 
how to live your life better. I was like, whoa, okay, that's that's kind of interesting. Um, and I think because maybe I share so much of my own applications, like people see my own workspace all the time. I'm like, here's how I do task management. Here's how I think about managing my plants. Like, So they're seeing all these different pockets of my life, and I think it's giving them ideas for how to apply it in their own life. And it's like, I can't teach you about managing your tasks in Notion if you don't actually know how to prioritize your own pillars of your own life. So inevitably, I had to keep layering on these, well, let's t- we have to talk about habits, we have to talk about that. So it just became bigger and bigger over time. I was like, Whoa, okay, where do, we, where do we cut this off? Like, how big does this become? And so I think some of those elements people weren't expecting to learn about, but they're kind of necessary, because you're not just going to switch from one tool to another and think suddenly all of your prioritization problems are going to be fixed, right? It's like, there's the technical piece, but there's also habit building pieces when you're learning to manage this stuff. So it's like new organizational habits. It's interesting how like when you when you start making a course, you might have an intention of where it's going to go. And as you create the content, and as students engage with it, you're like, Oh, wait, this is something a little bit different. Or, oh, actually, maybe there's three courses in here. Like even Ali and I were talking about this because he's going to have beginners, intermediate, he's got advanced people, like you're going to have people at all different levels with different intentions. And I think certainly with Notion, it's like, oh, wow, we have people who've never touched the tool before, but like saw a video and and bought it. And then we have people who are super advanced, been using it for two years, people that are managing their businesses out of it, people that are like running a farm and like a winery. I'm like, whoa, okay, how do I contain this when the intention is so different for all of these different students. And I think that was the, the hardest challenge for me is what's core curriculum and what is really fun rabbit holes you can go down. So like these branches of like, okay, well, everyone's on this track, but there's going to be some people who are going to want to go deeper. So probably the number one question that every indie hacker has for every successful indie hacker is how did you get started? Because all of you are like pretty advanced. You know, you've got hundreds of people taking on deck. You're making, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars from your courses. Uh, let's say you're total total newbie. You have no idea what it is you can even teach. You've got no online audience. No one knows who you are. You have very few skills. How do you take the first step to become a course creator? Yeah, so I think every everyone does have something to teach. And I actually, I, I, I keep a copy of Austin Kleon's books, uh, Show Your Work being my, my favorite one on my desk at all times. Because this is the book, which t- t- takes like five minutes to read, basically, because it's so short and pamphlet-like. This is a book that, like, one of the books that most changed my life because when, like five years ago now, in 2016, when I first read it, before that point, I was very scared of putting myself out there online. I'd been thinking, oh, maybe I should start a blog. And I just never really got around to it because I thought, you know, people are going to think I'm an arrogant whatever for having, you know, for having the the or the audacity to have my own website. Like, come on, who who, who the hell does that? And I read, I read Show Your Work and his point is that everyone has something to teach. And even if you're not teaching, like just documenting uh, your learning of something is actually a value add to other people trying to learn the same thing. And he talks about C.S. Lewis's phrase, I think the curse of the expert, where being a guru in something, being an expert is actually not necessarily the best way to teach a beginner because you probably have forgotten what the actual struggles of a beginner are. So when I read that book, that like completely changed my whole perspective on this stuff. And I started thinking, okay, I'm going to start writing stuff online about my journey through entrepreneurship because I'd been doing like the attempting to do the indie hacker thing for like 10 years at that point, trying to learn to code, trying to build my own like businesses, etc. And then when I started my YouTube channel, it was a case of, okay, I'm in medical school. Why don't I just share what it's like being in med school and what it took to get in and, you know, just share my thoughts on this because I thought I was reasonable at teaching. And just this thing of the, the way I think of it is what can you teach to someone who is three years younger than you, but 
but who is you in every other way? Like, what could you teach to yourself three years ago? And anyone asking themselves that question will have answers to that. Like, three years ago, I wish I would have known this. Or, oh, three years ago, I was trying to learn how to code. And I just then I discovered, I don't know, Codecademy. And here's how I learned. And being able to document that through something on the internet for free, so a blog or a YouTube channel, I think that would be the first place to start. And certainly that's how I got my start with online education. And I love that you're not discouraged by the fact that people might already be teaching this. Like, hey, you learned how to code? Guess what? There's lots of ways to teach people how to code. You shouldn't be discouraged. Uh, Marie, you're teaching people Notion mastery. There's a lot. Notion itself has guides for how to use Notion. <laughs> and yet you're still able to have this course. With any hackers, people had websites and interviews and books about how to start companies well before this. And so it's one of the beautiful things about course creation is you don't necessarily have to be discouraged because someone's already doing what you want to teach. It comes back to that residence thing, right? Like different teachers have different teaching styles, different delivery mechanisms, different ways of phrasing the same thing. You can hear the same thing 10 times, but you're like, oh, just the way they put that into words was like, yes, or uh, the written word versus video, right? Like some people are much stronger on video versus the written word or amazing tweet storms or something like that, right? So it's like we have to uh, remember that we're going to create resonance in a different way and just keep adding to your experience bucket. And over time, people are just going to be like, whoa, that journey is so interesting. I, re I really want to learn from that person. This is something anybody can do this. Like I, I actually, when I first started my business five or six years ago now, I was sort of in this frame of mind coming out, coming out of the corporate world where I was like, I need to pretend to be a lot bigger than I am. So it wasn't like I was like, we, I was always saying we to clients and meanwhile, it was just me. Like it worked, but I had like a very slow growth trajectory in those early days. And then fast forward to this past year, I probably in August had like 300 followers on Twitter, you know, didn't take it seriously on Twitter at all. But I started realizing, okay, I've been doing this online course thing, but for, you know, in a corporate environment for 15 years, I had a lot of experience there. There was now, I, I started, I basically started picking apart what online course creators are doing and sort of like, oh, this is what really worked well with Rite of Passage, for example. And that's what, you know, destination journey groups and, and that type of stuff just started resonating with people on Twitter. And so this, I had this like crazy growth curve from August until, um, until December when Eric Torenberg reached out. Well, actually before that, actually when Ali reached out and also, you know, Marie and I, you know, like started becoming friends with, with these folks who, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, quite frankly, didn't know I existed before August, you know? So it's like, that's the valuable thing is just learn in public, start to share that stuff and, and don't sort of keep it behind closed doors and pretend that you're, you're bigger than you are. Right. Um, cause it, it really does pay off. So in a way, it's like, you aren't even necessarily having to do the brilliant stuff. You were putting in the work to figure out how other people who were successful were doing it. And then you would share it personally and say, hey, here's you know my dissection of why this course works well. And you were just doing it from your personal Twitter account, which kind of conferred to you a bunch of expertise because no one else is really analyzing this stuff and breaking it down. Yeah, that's exactly right. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you guys that lear learning publicly is so huge, like not doing that work in secret, whatever you're learning, whatever work you are doing. I think the people that I've seen struggle the most are the, are ones that have, they've operated behind the scenes, they're doing all this work, they're working with clients, but there's no evidence of their work anywhere. I'm like, well, where's your, like, there's no YouTube videos. You've got some Instagram stories, which are ephemeral and disappear, right? So they're almost like choosing these channels where there isn't 
there's no SEO, there's no way to find their work. And so you've got to be kind of findable. Uh, and I think, again, Twitter has just enabled so much conversation, like it's so easy to meet interesting people. If I think Andrew's interesting, and I'm seeing him interact with Ali, and then someone else interesting replies, I'm like, whoa, like, you're going down these deep dives and meeting these really cool, interesting people who uh, maybe think think like you, but also have a really different and interesting perspective, too. So I, I think courage is a big part of it, just a, a willingness to put yourself out there, even if you don't feel like an expert yet is huge. So I'm a huge believer in that, whether it's a blog that you don't think anybody's watching yet, you know, sending out those email newsletters, even if you've only got five subscribers, like you just have to start somewhere. And that resonance starts really slow. But that ripple effect and that like compound interest of that 1% that you do every day, every week, whatever, even if you shipped a video a month, over two years, five years, like, the results of that are going to be so much bigger than if you just didn't take any action at all. And you're just kind of secretly working on your skills, work on your skills in public, share what you're working on, share your opinions, and you're going to find your people over time, but you got to put in the work. And you don't have to have it figured out to begin with. That's the other thing, right? I like, it's such a paralyzing thing. And for, for a lot of people, for me included. And I remember when I first started sharing stuff online, I was like, this is how to create uh, an online, or not an online course, like a course for companies, you know, and like no one cared about that on Twitter. And it was until I started like talking about what course creators are doing that that's where it started resonating. So I, yeah, I mean, I go back and look at a whole bunch of tweets there, which is like into the void. No one was, no one was, was reading. And I think sharing that, like sharing, hey, here's what I'm thinking about X versus here's how to do X. So I think you, you can just share what you're like, hey, here's what I'm thinking about or, or here's something I've noticed, right? Like I've worked with a number of clients and I keep seeing why. Like show that you are recognizing patterns and that you're seeing certain trends, even if you're, again, a beginner. But just sharing that thinking is what is going to start to put those, you know, that that resonance out there. I love that, that just like slight twisting of the phrase. Cause if you're a perfectionist or you're someone who's like got a lot of anxiety about how people will perceive you. Well, if you phrase things as here's how to do X, like you've now raised the bar tremendously on what you need to share and you're going to be paralyzed because you can't live up to that. And I also to Andrew's point about just putting out content and tweaking. The cool thing about being a YouTuber or a tweeter or a podcaster or a blogger is like most people aren't even going to look at your early stuff. Like no one's scrolling down your Twitter timeline to see what you were tweeting a bunch like years ago. Like you just like put stuff out there see how it resonates and like ideally don't lock yourself into one plan right at the beginning. Like your podcast, if you have a podcast should change over time and it should get better and better over time. And it doesn't matter if you start off pretty crappy. And so it's just another easy way, I think, to get started by giving yourself some leeway to not have to start with perfection. I don't know how many years ago it was, but uh, I was just terrified to be on video. Like I never wanted to do client calls or anything. I was like, just let's operate by email. Like I was really, really afraid of being visible in any way, shape or form. But I knew that was going to hold me back in business. And I think I started with a hundred, the hundred day project. I don't know if you've heard about it, but you pick one thing to do every day for a hundred days. And so I did a video blog. I posted those to YouTube. I posted them on Instagram and I left them up because they are awkward AF <laughs> and I wanted people to see this is a learnable skill. Like you can learn to speak on stage. You can learn to get comfortable in video. Seems like it's a lot easier for some people than others, for sure. And people are like, oh, but you seem so comfortable. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've hired speaking coaches. I've done these crazy challenges. I sign up for acting classes. Like you name it. I have done everything because I knew this was a skill I needed to work on. And I wanted people to know that. I wanted them to know it's not just that there are people people that are very comfortable 
and they're just naturally amazing on stage and there's the rest of us, these are skills that we can learn. And so I wanted people to be able to see that trajectory. I get notes from people all the time being like, oh, wow, I went back and watched video one or I watched video 14. I'm like, oh, it's it's cringy, but it needs to it needs to be there for people as a reminder that we are all on a journey. We are progressing at our own pace and there's room for everybody to improve, whatever that looks like for you. So I want to try an abstract question here to sort of close this out. I'm curious, like, what mental models, what philosophies, uh, what ideas do you all have that drive your work in life? And it doesn't have to be related to course creation. It could just be any sort of broad idea. So I'll start just as an example. I really like this idea from Charlie Munger about having a sort of lattice work of higher level ideas that you can hang specific things on. So the way he describes it is it's really hard to remember 100 little facts. But it's easier to remember like a small number of facts from which you can derive other things. So if I think about a business, for example, I just think of four words, like what problem is it solving? What's the distribution channel? What's the business model? And what's the product? And from those four words, I can basically create like a thousand little questions for each one of those that'll help me analyze the business. I don't have to remember a whole bunch of different stuff. So I try to take that with me to every part of life and I find it to be super useful. Uh, what models do you all have? You know, What are things you've learned or, or read that have really stuck with you? So it's funny, I think my one is sort of also in this space a little bit. I've been thinking a lot about destination and journey groups and sort of applying that to my own personal life as well. Um, constantly kind of going between action, action, action and sort of alignment with where I'm headed. And that's something I've only started like doing more intentionally this year, like sort of end of last year, this year, as things just start to get so much busier now, I'm basically running two companies, like mm-hmm. got a one-year-old kid, like just had to do this. And just so that you know that when you're executing, 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 you're actually on the path that you want to be on and it's aligned with what you want to be, you know. So, the, so the journey, you're clear on what the destination is and then you're just focused on the journey and sort of all the things that come with that, bringing people in, you know, and like making relationships and all that sort of stuff. Sean Peary has a good idea called know your ABZs, like A, where you are, B, your next step, and Z, like where you want to end up. And if you sort of lose sight of any of those, you might end up way off path. My whole mental model for things is just try and enjoy the journey as much as possible. If I find that I'm not having fun doing anything, then not everything can be fun 100% of the time. But if it's if it's very not fun for uh, an extended amount of time, then usually there's a sign that something is wrong. Either it's a destination that's not meaningful to me, or more likely I'm kind of approaching it, I'm choosing to approach it in a way that is just not conducive to having fun. And in particular, one one thing that I'm very bullish on <laughs> is setting input goals rather than outcome goals. Uh, input goals meaning I'm just going to make two videos a week. Outcome goal being like, I want to get X number of subscribers or I'm in the process of writing a book at the moment. And I really wanted to hit the New York Times bestseller list. But anytime I think about it, it just gets so depressing and I hate the thought of writing the book. Whereas I try and rewire my brain to think, nope, I'm not going to care about that. <laughs> if it happens, it'll happen. But otherwise, you know, the thing I'm going to care about is I want to write a book that I'm proud of, which is an input goal. It's in my control. So that just helps me enjoy the journey rather than being fixated on the destination. I love it. Well, Ali, Andrew, Marie, thank you for coming on the show, dropping some gems about course creation. I would love for you to let the audience know where they can go to find out more about the courses you're working on, uh, about the On Deck Course Creation Fellowship. Uh, Andrew, maybe you want to start? If you go to beyonddeck.com, um, in the top menu, you'll find course creators. Uh, we've actually 
closed, uh, depending on when this is released, actually, we closed now for the first cohort, but we're gonna be running two or three cohorts a year. Um, and so people can get on the, the wait list there. And if you wanna to talk to me specifically about it uh, on Twitter at Bazaruto, B-A-Z-Z-A-R-U-T-O, I, I love getting DMs from people who are passionate teachers and course creators and I answer all of them. So that's the best place. You can find me online at mariepoolin.com or if you're curious about the course, notionmastery.com. Pretty active on Twitter or Instagram or YouTube if you're looking for Notion-related content. So you can pretty much Google my name. I've got all the handles. <laughs> yeah, and same for me. If you just Google my name, you'll find my website or YouTube channel. And through there, you'll find links to the Part-Time YouTuber Academy if you're interested in signing up. Our next cohort is probably going to be in like June, so June 2021. So depending on when you're watching this, I would love to have you. All right. Thanks, everybody. 